0: Lord God, your word reaches into the very core of our being. For you want us to love you with all our heart and soul. So we pray today that your word will indeed pierce our hearts. Change them. Make us more like you. For Jesus' sake. Amen. I recently read a a relatively famous book, although I hadn't heard of it, to be honest, until just recently, but I'm told it's famous, called The Silence by Japanese writer Endo. He speaks about the persecution of the Catholic Church around about 1700 AD in Japan. Fierce, brutal, nasty persecution, uh, cunning and devious, basically aimed not at killing the priests, but at torturing them so much that they would recant their faith. And thus, if they did that, the people they ministered to who were believers would give up their faith. And in this novel, which is based on a true story, a priest comes because one earlier priest has been reputed to have given up the faith and is now living comfortably in Japan. And so these two priests, in fact, come. One uh, gets killed, but the story is about one of them. And the torture and brutality that he goes through, and in the end, the guilt of his compromise as he publicly renounces his Christian faith in the face of torture and suffering. The book's called The Silence because as he tried to grapple with this, it felt as though God was silent. It felt for him as though God were absent, and that God was not strengthening him through the middle of all of that suffering. Suffering can be dangerous, in fact, for Christians because uh, our experience of suffering or our observation of suffering can indeed challenge, let me dare say it, weak faith. A former Prime Minister of Australia had been brought up as a Christian under a pastor, father, but his experience as a young moi, uh, young man visiting India and seeing the abject poverty and suffering in India led him to renounce his faith and become an avowed atheist, which he is to this day, I gather. Unanswered prayers, the face of suffering, an apparently absent God, many Christians struggle in those sorts of experiences and environment. In the midst of a terrible suffering, a a particular one, it's not a general case of suffering, But in the midst of a particular suffering here in the book of Lamentations, the the lament over the fall of Jerusalem in the 6th century BC, we find here a hard book, a heart-wrenching book, but a book that helps us dig deeply down to the bedrock of biblical faith. In the midst of an extreme turmoil, anguish, and distress, we are being brought right down to the very core of our faith, at least in Old Testament terms. And that's a good exercise even for us. It is good for us to plumb the depths of the sorrow that's expressed here so that we find a firm bedrock on which to stand in the midst of the turmoil that we might face, which in some ways is unlikely to be as significant as the turmoil that the writer of this book ever faced. It's hard work, this book. It's a bit exhausting, let let me say. Every word, every sentence is, is quite emotional. It's not a book that you can read fast, actually. It's a book that we should read slowly, deliberately, maybe in our own devotions out loud to slow us down. It's a book that demands us to reflect on the images that keep getting tossed at us, verse by verse by verse. This book raises questions for us. Is our faith deep enough to find a solid ground when we are surrounded by the river of sorrow in our life? Is our trust in God firm enough to rest on the deep truths of God in Scripture? even if the circumstances around us seem to challenge that? Well, this chapter is the heart of the book. As you may have noticed, 66 verses. The last two weeks, 22 verses. I preached for about 40 minutes on 22 verses. You can do your mathematics. However, let me assure you that this chapter is no longer than the previous two. In the previous two chapters, each verse had three lines, in this case, each verse has one line. But like what we've seen in the first two uh, chapters, uh, it's tightly written. 22 is the number of letters of the Hebrew alphabet. And even though this person is, a, is pouring out grief, it's clearly thoughtfully put together, carefully put together, as though it's giving voice to grief, but at the same time trying to lead those grieving the fall of Jerusalem into the bedrock of biblical faith. And we come, in fact, to the very center point of this book today. The book almost is unrelenting grief and sorrow and anguish and turmoil, gut-wrenching pictures being thrown at us like we see on our television news screens. But at the heart of the book comes a sort of beacon that stands out on the surface. It seems to stand out unusually. And yet in many ways it's carefully placed right at the center because this is the center of our faith but before we get to that a little bit more grief to experience i'm sure we're very familiar with psalm 23 the lord is my shepherd therefore i lack nothing he leads me in straight paths to green pastures my cup will overflow all those sorts of wonderfully reassuring and comforting ideas as this chapter opens a new poem, a new lament—the third one of the book. The writer almost seems to provide what we could say is a is a parody of the twenty-third psalm. It's not it's not quite direct enough to be sure about that. But there are so many connections with Psalm twenty-three in the opening verses, and yet they are perverse connections. They're the opposite of what we might expect. So in verse 1, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. But in Psalm 23, the Good Shepherd's rod guides and leads us. Here it's a rod of wrath. Then in verse 2, he has driven and brought me into darkness without light. Not to green pastures, but he's led me to darkness. In verse 3, surely against me, he turns his hand. And yet Psalm 23 speaks about the good shepherd being with me through the valley of the shadow of death. Instead of providing food as the good shepherd does, the Lord the shepherd, he has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He's broken my bones. That is a picture of famine, no food. The opposite of what the Psalm 23 might say. In verse 5, we would expect the good shepherd or the Lord to protect. But here, he has besieged and enveloped me. That is, instead of protecting, he, he in fact has enveloped or besieged by way of an attack rather than a defense. And besieged me with bitterness and tribulation. In verse 6, he's made me dwell, not in the house of the Lord forever. He's made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He's walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Normally, you'd expect a, a shepherd to provide a wall of protection from an enemy. But here, it's a wall of prison. Not a wall of protection. And though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. Why bother praying? There is silence, like the Japanese priest experienced silence. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked, not straight, not to green pastures but made them crooked. And instead of guarding against predators, as a shepherd would guard against wolves, for example, he himself is a bear lying in wait for me. He's a lion in hiding. It's not just that this one opens the gate for the bears and the lions. He himself is a bear and a lion. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces... He has made me desolate. Instead of being a friend, he is a foe. So he has bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. You may expect a shepherd with a bow and arrow to use the bow and arrow to try and hit the predator, the wolf, or whatever is going to try and attack the sheep. But here, these sheep are the object of the bow and the arrow. And so in verse 13, he drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. Well, it may not actually be the kidneys. It could be the sort of more vital organs, actually. The word could be a bit euphemistic for attacking the vital sexual organs. Pretty painful, I imagine. The opposite of what you would expect of a shepherd. And so I've become a laughingstock of all the peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness instead of good things and a filled cup. He's filled me with bitterness and he's sated me, not in the house of the Lord, with good things in the face of my enemies, but he's filled me or sated me with wormwood, bitter, almost poisonous wormwood. And so in verse 16, instead of eating good food that a shepherd provides, he has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. It's a pretty grim picture. As I say, it may not be directly a parody on Psalm 23, but there are so many connections, little words, little suggestions. Here is a shepherd gone wrong, although it doesn't use the word shepherd. But the bear and the lion, that imagery of protection and feeding, is all shepherd-like imagery. And we know from Jeremiah, traditionally regarded as the author of this lamentation, we know from the prophet Jeremiah that in the, one of the causes of the fall of Jerusalem were that the shepherds of God's people, the prophets, the priests, and the kings, had failed abysmally to guard, protect, and feed God's people in ways of truth. And so they'd led them to idolatry, false teaching, and immorality, over the centuries and jeremiah accuses rightly accuses those false shepherds so here here it almost looks as though that this this one this person being described here is like a false shepherd notice that the name of the person is not mentioned in those verses i read he I am the man who's seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. Who is his? It doesn't say. We know it's the Lord. That becomes clear only a bit later on. Verse 18. It's the Lord who's done this. It's the Lord who's acting like a false shepherd. That's what seems to be apparent on the surface. It's a a shocking imagery. I think it's meant to be shocking. It's meant to shock these sufferers and grievers to see the truth of why their suffering has occurred, that it's because of their sin. And it does shock to see that God has acted in such a way. The writer sums up his despair in verse 17, My soul is bereft of peace. No peace at all. No peace at all. I have forgotten what happiness is. So overwhelming has been the experience of this suffering that happiness is just a a distant, hazy memory. And so I say in verse 18, my endurance has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. The first time the Lord's mentioned by name, By using the word he all the way through, some suggest that it's like the language of a broken relationship. You know when a broken relationship occurs, a a husband leaves the the wife, and so how do they address the other person to their children? When my father left my mother, he'd say, your mother. He would never name my mother by name. Your mother. Not his former wife. So it's a broken relationship. He, 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 instead of Yahweh, instead of the name of God, instead of saying my people, the slight distance that's being created here by the pronouns is is a way of showing a, a fractured relationship, it seems. And in verse 19, remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it, and is bowed down within me no longer can he remember happiness all he remembers is the wormwood and the gall the bitterness the poison almost of the suffering after the fall of jerusalem and my soul continually remembers it it's been etched into my soul is what he's saying i am in the pits of despair here and my soul is bowed down within me and yet it's from this place from the bottom from the bottom of the pit that these stunning words that follow come we're used to singing them, I think we're singing some of these words later we're used to singing them with joy but we're probably not used to their context we're probably unaware maybe, many of us The context of great is your faithfulness. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. But here those words are being said or sung in the slough of despond. At the bottom of the pit, when there seems to be no way out, no hope, the bitterness of affliction is deep to the taste and to the soul. But this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. What is striking here is not a new revelation of God. It's not that at the bottom of the pit suddenly the Lord speaks to me, not at all. This I call to mind. I remember. And what does he remember? What is it that he remembers that causes him hope, even at the bottom of his suffering and despair? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In the turmoil of his despair, something triggers in his memory. Words of faith. These are not shallow words of Cheerful optimism, like we saw last week, the false prophet speak. This is not a cheer up, everything's going to be okay, somehow I'm going to get out of this mess. No, not like that. That's not what gives him hope. But what he calls to mind comes from scripture for him and us. What he calls to mind comes to the bedrock of his faith, comes to the core of the character of God himself. This is faith that is somehow regenerating in the pit of despair coming out of his scripture, out of his memory of scripture, the steadfast love, the mercy, and the faithfulness of God. Where is he thinking of? What's come to his mind? Well, in a very significant uh, verse, a verse that's perhaps even quoted the most of any other verse in the Old Testament quoted within the Old Testament. I'm not quite sure about that, but it, it's a fair guess, I suspect. We read these words about the character of God. Now, I mark this in my own Bible, and then, of course, I'm using your Bible, I forgot to mark it again. But anyway, here we are. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Those famous words do not come out of context in his mind, I guess. As so often in the Bible, when a Bible verse is alluded to or quoted, the context of that verse is assumed. Those words were spoken about the character of God when? After the sin of the golden calf. After the punishment on some Israelites for the sin of the golden calf. After the intercession of Moses for the sins of the people making a golden calf and worshipping it. At a time of sin... Idolatry, the worst sin, at a time of God's punishment, at a time where the promises of God are significantly under threat, and God said to Moses, I'm going to blot out all these people and start again with you. The end result was that great verse from Exodus 34 The Lord, the Lord, slow, great, uh, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, who will by no means clear the guilty. And that's the same situation that this writer finds himself in. After persistent idolatry and immorality, not just by him but by the whole people of God, they are suffering for their sin. And at the bottom of the pit... Overwhelmed by grief, distress, and anguish, having wretched and thrown up because of the things that he's seen, children being eaten and dying in the streets, he comes to a firm foundation. At the bottom, the character of God as revealed in his scripture, a God who is merciful, a God who is faithful. A God who abounds in steadfast love. That's the God that he comes to. That's why he ends up in hope. Because he remembers that God. And so we read in verse 21 again. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. It's not an exact quote of Exodus 34. But the three key words are all there. Steadfast love, mercy, faithfulness all there. This writer knows God and he trusts God even in the midst of this distress and turmoil and he rests on the bedrock of God's unchanging character. You and I can sing this today. Our lives are probably relatively okay but could we sing these words at the bottom of the pit? Could we sing the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases when we are standing in the ruins of smoldering Jerusalem with dead babies bodies lying in the street around us? Former Prime Minister of Australia couldn't do that. Many others in history have given up their faith in the face of various sufferings. What about for us? Is our faith deep enough to rest on the bedrock of the character of God, who is steadfast in love, full of mercy, and faithful to himself and to his promises? So this soul of the writer that has been bowed down, the soul that continually remembers the wormwood and the gall from verse 20, now this soul says in verse 24, the Lord is my portion. That is, I belong to the Lord. The Lord is my hope. The Lord is my delight. The Lord is my joy. Everything else may be stripped away and the Lord is the only one left for hope. That's where laments in the Bible, in the Old Testament, often lead us to. Often what happens is things are taken away, sometimes good, sometimes bad, sometimes situations are terrible. And what it leaves us in is a place where there's only one place to turn. And that's God. And that's why laments that seem to be so almost faithless and despairing like in this book suddenly turn because there's nowhere else to turn except to God. This suffering in this book is for sin like in Exodus 34 after the golden calf and if this writer can plumb the depths in the midst of this overwhelming experience to find the certainty of the character of God well so ought we because our scriptures testify even more clearly to the same character of the same God, a God who is full of mercy, steadfast love, and faithful. If the writer knows that and the Old Testament testifies to it in the time of the golden calf incident, and if the Old Testament testifies to it in various other parts of the Old Testament, how much more clearly, how much stronger is the beacon of light of the character of God than on Calvary's cross, where wrath and mercy meet. For there we see, above all else in history, where God's steadfast love, abundant mercy, and faithfulness are on clearest display. As a result, the writer waits in hope. Verse 25, the law uh, Therefore, I will hope in him at the end of verse 24. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. So it's good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Now, oh, waiting's a difficult thing. We're always having to wait. I'm an impatient waiter. I hate being in a queue that seems never to move. Most queues seem never to move. But we are to wait You see, this writer knows that there's no quick fix. It's not as though suddenly having hit bedrock, ah, God is steadfast in mercy, and suddenly, bingo, Jerusalem's rebuilt before his eyes like a magic trick. Not at all. He knows that this suffering is going to go on and on and on. In fact, that's perhaps why this passage is in the middle of the book, not the end of the book. Because the end of the book, the next two chapters, as you'll see next week and the week after, continue with the grief and the outpouring of anguish. Because that's what grief is like. It comes and goes. And it's not going to end quickly. And yet all through it at the bedrock is the steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness of God. And yes, God is good. God is good to those who wait for him. Wait in faith, not wait in faithlessness. You no, know, it's very easy to wait with faithlessness. I wait for trains to take me back to Serumban. I don't wait with a great deal of faith. It's getting a bit better, but I would say that more than half the trains in the first few years I was here were late, and some were so full that I couldn't get on. So I learned to wait without faith. We had to wait with faith. We had to wait with confidence in a God because we know his character, and his character is more dependable and reliable than even the circumstances that confront our eyes. So often, you see, we're persuaded by the things in front of us as though, how can God be here? And we turn away from God. But the scriptures keep testifying to us so that we will wait and wait with hope, not wishful thinking, but with certain, sure hope. That's part of suffering. This waiting is a suffering waiting. He's in the middle of suffering. His waiting will be while the suffering continues. See, Christianity has a very different view of suffering than Buddhism. Suffering for us can actually be a good thing. Punitive, disciplinary, training us so that we change to be more like God himself. And so this centerpiece of the third chapter, the middle chapter of the whole book, continues in verse 27. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. That is, it seems, a yoke of suffering. That is when a youth, a young person learns to suffer, their faith will be resilient and strong for their life ahead. How often have you heard stories or met people who grow up in Christian families, grow up in happy churches, seem to be very keen in church life, and they hit their 20s or 30s, and suddenly a great major collapse, a fall, an infidelity, a, an abandonment of faith? Tragic. I may not, in one sense, I'm not being critical of their experiences, but sometimes when Christians have gone through tough times, it makes us tough to keep persevering for the rest of our life in faith. So let him sit alone in silence when it's laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. That is driving him to God. Not to the temple, that's been destroyed. Not to Jerusalem, that's gone as well. Not to the priests, they're all in exile and in a shame. Not to the prophets, well, they've all gone. Not to the king, he's been killed. That is not to the good things that God gives. Not to the, if you like, the externals, but right to the heart, driven to God, there's nowhere else to go. So let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. When we know Jesus' words about turn the other cheek, sometimes we think Jesus is creating a new idea, but here it is. Turn the cheek. That is, if you are trusting in God at the bottom of the pit, knowing the steadfast character of God, we can turn the cheek. If we don't know that, if we don't know that God, then we're not going to turn the cheek. We're going to fight back. But not so, says the writer here. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not willingly afflict or grieve... The children of men. He doesn't willingly do this. He's done it because they're so sinful, persistently, willfully sinful for centuries. The hope that's expressed here in the character of God also, to a degree, depends on the power of God. If God is to be faithful, as is declared in these verses, God must also be powerful. to keep his promises and thus be faithful. God's faithfulness is not just that he's committed to the people to make their life good. His faithfulness is to the promises to Abraham and David. His faithfulness is about his grand purposes for this universe, to restore all things in Christ, to create the new heavens and new earth through Christ. That's what he's faithful to do. And that faithfulness perseveres even when God's people are faithless. That's what the Old Testament testifies to, chapter after chapter after chapter, as indeed does the new. And we can be assured that our faithlessness will never thwart the faithfulness of God. Paul expresses that clearly early in Romans, for example. So this writer knows that God is faithful, but part of that is the power of God to keep his promises to be faithful. We can make promises that we cannot keep, because they're outside our power. I can promise you I'll be here at 10.30 next Sunday, but I, can't promi- I can promise you perfect health for the rest of your life. But the latter one's out of my power, and even the former one's a bit dubious sometimes with trains and taxis. But anyway, so what goes on here now shows us and reminds us that this God who is faithful in mercy is powerful enough to be able to deliver on his promises. So verse 34, to crush underfoot all the prisoners of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken it's come to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? That is, God is sovereign. Everything that happens is under his sovereign word. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Wow, that's a challenge to some of our thinking, isn't it? The bad might come or evil might come from God evil, at least in human perception, like the destruction of Jerusalem. Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? Stop complaining is what the writer is saying here. God is sovereign. All of this comes from the hand of God. And because God is sovereign and because he's faithful, we can have absolute assurance that the end result will be the fulfillment of the purposes and promises of God for this world. Nothing lies outside his domain. And so he can be trusted absolutely. So the writer exhorts his fellow sufferers. In verse 40, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven for we've transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. You've wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. Now the writer begins to go back into the suffering the lament of the grief. But notice how out of the high words about God's character, it leads him to exhort his sufferers to repent, to turn back to God, to confess their sin, to lift their hands to God. Even here in the rubble of Jerusalem, even here in exile in Babylon, even here where death lies all around, it is not yet too late to turn back to God. This may look like the final judgment of God in the Old Testament and yet even here God still creates an avenue for repentance and thus the display of his steadfast love and mercy that never ends though his wrath will one day come to an end. Mercy is what we need most. Mercy is what they needed most And there is no mercy without judgment. There's no mercy without holiness from God. No mercy that is deserved. We can never deserve mercy because mercy is always by definition undeserved. And so a repentance and confession must acknowledge that we do not deserve God's mercy at all. Well, the writer leads on. We'll jump a few verses here. In verse 49, he determines to pray unceasingly. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. His eyes see the suffering, but in his soul now he trusts in God that God will see and God will answer. Yes, he's been hunted like a bird by those who are his enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit, cast stones on me, water closed over my head. I'm lost. Sounds like Jeremiah himself. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. These words remind us of the Psalms. There's phrases from here and there in the Psalms of Lament. Here again, the writer is showing the value of knowing scripture, that he's coming back to God through God's word that he already knows. And he's echoing it. In fact, it expresses the past tense here. You heard my plea. Past tense. Probably because he's referring to a psalm. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You've taken up my cause. What he's doing here is seems to be alluding to the psalms as an expression of faith that God will do the same for him and his people at a later time. While he now waits in hope for that time to come. You've taken up my cause, O Lord you have redeemed my life. That's his hope. And he's pledged himself to keep on persistently praying while he waits. You see, waiting for the Lord in hope is not about putting your feet up and drinking endless cups of tea. Nice though that might be. Waiting in hope means praying, praying, trusting, praying full of faith praying, knowing that God in God's time, because of his mercy, because of his steadfast love and his faithfulness, and because God is all sovereign, he will answer our prayers. His way, his time. We wait in hope. Praying is what he's illustrating here for us. But one final thing at the end of this chapter In verse 59, he says, You have seen the wrong to me, O Lord. Judge my cause. He doesn't mean that the attack on Jerusalem in itself was wrong, but more here that those who did it are pagans. They are idolaters and they are immoral. What about justice for them? Vengeance against them. So in verse 60, you've seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You've heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object of their taunts, but you will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them for under your heavens, O Lord. The chapter closes with faith trusting in God's sovereignty, steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness, that therefore even those he's used to bring down Jerusalem, they themselves will be under the judgment of God in due course. For God is judge of all, God is sovereign over all, and God abounds in steadfast love and mercy and faithfulness. Lamentations, as we saw two weeks ago, warns us not to be persistent in our sin. Not to keep flirting with our sin. The graphic pictures of suffering here are meant to shock us out of wrong lifestyles in our own lives. Sinners, we cannot complain if we suffer for our sin, as they did in this book the suffering of punishments, what we're due. Death is the wages of sin. We don't deserve God's mercy. We cannot presume upon the mercy of God. But we can wait in hope, praying, repentant, confessing our sin, knowing that God, who is full of steadfast love, mercy, and faithfulness, will hear us and answer us And if this writer could have such bedrock confidence in God's character, how much more can we? Because Christ has died for us, where wrath and mercy meet. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Amen.